You ready? Larry, you got a recording on the little machine as well? I do. Okay. Okay, let's start. This is the Shir Ilunish Mosma from Shmob and Abramaria Cohen, Chai Tovapas, Eliezer Mendelai Cohen on the book of Yechezkel. Last week we finished chapter 12. Uh, what I want to do this week before we start chapter 13, which goes on to a slightly different subject, the subject of false prophets. Uh, I just want to have a little epilogue to chapter 12. Uh, in line with the fact that it's Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur coming up, uh, based really on the last couple of verses in chapter 12. And um, what we saw in ch- right at the end of chapter 12 is one of the things that God uh, was, uh, so to speak, disappointed with uh, regarding the Jews of Yerushalayim um, and the Jews throughout uh, the land of Israel was the fact that in verse 28, uh, which is the last verse of the chapter, we saw this language of Beis Yisrael Omri. There were Jews that said, It's true. What the prophets prophesied is going to take place. But it's not going to happen today, and it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen in the future. In the far future, who bought? that the prophets is pro- prophets have been prophesying it's not going to affect us we're going to be okay it, let the future generations be concerned about it and um, this idea of uh, what we sh- maybe we should call it complacency um, really is a psychological reality that takes every human being I mean it affects every human being this idea of complacency um, it's prevalent in almost every human being. Uh, and so we we tend to be complacent about certain events that we don't believe will take place today. I'll just give you a very easy example. If it was announced over the radio that there's a 1% chance that the water in Renana is poisoned with cyanide, uh, the reality is no one in Renana with any brains in, them, in their heads would drink the water. Uh, even though it's only a 1% chance, why not take a chance? 99 to 1, you're going to be okay. But um, if it's cyanide, so, you know, no one's going to take the chance. Uh, by the same token, people are told that there's not a 1% chance, but there may be even up to a 30% chance that by spending too much time in the sun, you're putting yourself at the risk of getting skin cancer. Uh, no one seems to pay very much attention to that reality. And uh, so you got uh, in, a, in one situation, you got a one percent chance of, you know, something very bad happening to you and you're not prepared to take the chance. On the other, on the other side of the scale, you've got something that's got a 30, maybe 40 percent chance. Um, but you don't seem to be taking uh, much of paying, paying much attention to it. And uh, the reason for this discrepancy is that. In, in the case of the water, if the water is poisoned, you're going to get poisoned today and you're going to die today. Um, that's why people won't take the risk. If you spend too much time in the sun, however, uh, a person is quite easily fooled into rationalizing foolishly that true, you know, I might get cancer, but I'm not going to die today. I'm not going to get cancer today. 
And human beings have got this strange, complacent ability to kick the can down the road. Let's worry about that possibility later. Let's worry about what happens later when it happens, if it happens. Um, and one has to ask, uh, in relation to the chapter that we've just read, is that the reason that the Jews of the first temple period ignored all the warnings? The prophets for, for hundreds of years have been warning and warning and warning. Nothing so far has happened. So the people said, you know what? It's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen tomorrow. When it happens, well, we'll worry about it then. So the likelihood is it won't take place in our lifetimes. Let the succeeding generations worry, worry about it. Uh, and we'll push it down to the back of our minds. And um, if it happens, it happens. Um, is that is that was that the attitude of the Jews in the first temple period? Um, and the reality is we should know the answer to that question um, about complacency and kicking the can down the road, worrying about not worrying about something today, letting it uh, play out. Uh, after all, oh, aren't we in the same situation ourselves 24 centuries later? What do we say about our own existential national and personal threats? What do we say about it? Let's see. Um, let's firstly, thinking about the Holocaust and the attitude of many G Jews in Germany and Austria and the other countries, uh, there was a culture of denial. It's never going to happen here. And even if it does happen here, it's not going to happen here now. Um, and people, you know, people just kick the can down the road. Um, Maybe we dismiss the threats against us because life is generally good in our in our times. Yes, there's anti-Semitism in all the countries we live in, but overall, wherever we are, whether it be in England or France or America, we're doing pretty well. So let's concentrate on the positives rather than the negatives. Let's not worry about something that may or may not happen somewhere down the somewhere down the line, somewhere in the future. Or thirdly. Why should I get worked up about a possible future event that I've got no control over? I, I can't control what God's going to do. I can't control what history's got in store for me. Let's just keep our heads down and get on with our lives. And what happens in the future happens. And the attitude being, there's nothing I can do about it now. So why worry about it? The famous song, Why Worry? Um, why worry? Right. If it happens, it happens. And uh, there's nothing I can do about it. Now, here in the example of the first temple, the complacency seems to be based on the fact that prophets have been prophesying doom, gloom, destruction uh, for at least 200 years. Um, and so far, nothing had happened. So not unnaturally, the people extrapolated and came to the conclusion that these warnings, these rebukes by the prophets uh, of a dire future might just be a bluff by God to get us to do Teshuva. After all, they argued, in 850 years since they arrived in Israel, under Yeshua, the land of Israel had never been conquered. Um, so is that what's going on in Yerushalayim 2,400 years ago? That attitude, the complacency. The, the idea that if it happens, it happens, but we don't believe it's going to happen now. And uh, 
even if it does happen now, what can we do about it? So these are all these are all question marks that go to the psych uh, psychological um, uh, predisposition of the people that were living in Yerushalayim two thousand years ago, and it's pretty much the same human nature that we have today. Now, if that was the prevailing rationale in, in Yechezkel's time in Yerushalayim. What's the parallel for this type of attitude amongst the Jewish people today, 2,400 years later? What are we doing? What do, what do we think about things? Uh, is there a parallel? Is there a parallel in, in the concept of pushing the can down the road and not worrying about it now in case it never happens? Um, I think the answer to the question is yes. Uh, we have a similar type of complacency. But in a very strange way, our, compla- our complacency is what I would describe as, in mathematical terms, inversely proportional uh, to, the, to the attitude of the Jews in First Temple periods. The Jews of the First Temple period became sceptical about God going through with his warnings and threats of destruction uh, after so many years of rebuke without consequence. We, on the other hand, have become sceptical, complacent, not about the potential for our demise, but rather about another promise God made, the redemption and the messianic era. Uh, the old joke about the safest job in the shtetl, they say that, uh, you know, uh, in the shtetl, when, when we go back to the times of the shtetl, so there was an attitude within the shtetl that everyone should have a job. And so, you know, there's always a village idiot uh, in every town. And uh, normally that person sits next to you on the bus. Um, but there's always a village idiot. And the old story that uh, the job they gave to the village idiot was they gave him a pot and a piece of wood. And they stationed him at the uh, crossroads leading into the city, leading into the village. Um, when he saw Mashiach come, he was supposed to, you know, bang, bang on the, bang on the pot to warn everybody that Mashiach was arriving. And, uh, the old joke was that it was the safest job in the shtetl. It's a job for life. And, um, you know, no, no one foresaw. Uh, we all say, you know, we've got a responsibility to, uh, believe that the Mashiach is going to come. Even though it's been delayed, uh, we're supposed to wait for, for the Mashiach. We're supposed to believe that it's going to come up at any moment. But with reference to the ultimate redemption, the Messianic era, we seem to have become complacent in the opposite direction. The, the Jews of the first temple period were complacent about their own destruction. The Jews of the 21st century seem to be complacent about the idea of them being redeemed. Now, the Rambam, Maimonides, as we know, includes the idea of a daily yearning for the redemption and the Messianic era as a principle of faith. Um, now, the difference between a law from the Torah and a principle of faith is you can break a law from the Torah and still be considered Jewish. If you don't believe in one of the principles of faith, the Rambam says you're not even Jewish, irrespective of whether you've got a Jewish mother or not. If you don't believe these 13 principles, you're excluded from the Jewish nation. It's a red line. 
It's not like eating a cheeseburger. It's not like breaking Shabbos. The Gemara says, Yisrael, Apal Yisrael. Jews that sin, they're Jews. They're just Jews that have done a sin. But if you go be, beyond the red lines of the articles of faith, the principles of faith, you're not even considered to be part of the Jewish nation. And he writes, we, we say it, Ani Mamin again, Ani Mamin Shalema, I believe with complete faithfulness. In the coming of the Mashiach, he, he, he's delayed. Despite that, I wait for him, hoping that every day is going to be the day. Um, we know there's a mitzvah in the Torah. Some say it's a mitzvah in the Torah. Some say it's a rabbinic mitzvah um, that comes from the Gemara in Shabbos on Daflamid Aleph. It's called Mitzapalash Yeshua. Uh, and the Gemara says there, this is the Gemara on Shabbos. The Gemara says, Omar Rabba, Bashar Shemachnisin Odom Ledin. Listen to this. And, uh, here we are, uh, four or five days before Rosh Hashanah. He says, Bashar Shemachnisin Odom Ledin. Before a man comes before the, uh, eternal court. We're not talking about the Rosh Hashanah. We're talking about the Rosh Hashanah when you, when you pass away. After departing this world, when a person is brought to judgment for the life he lived in this world, Omrim the heavenly court said to him, First thing they want to know from you is, did you conduct business faithfully and honestly? Number one. Number two, did you, did you designate time for Torah study during your life? Or sacked up a period of Arivia, did you attempt to try and have children? Now, we know the myths of children. This is, uh, people think that, uh, you know, if they don't have children, they've uh, not fulfilled the myths of children. Ramosha Feinstein says that the mitzvah, uh of Pruravu, the, the mitzvah of having children is attempting to have children. It's God's decision whether you actually manage to procreate or not. But or sacked up a period of Arivia. Did you attempt to engage in procreation, which is the first mitzvah in the Torah? And finally, the fourth question they ask you, which is the one that catches people out, is Sipitza Li Yeshua. Did you wait with bated breath for the ultimate redemption? And we know that the Chovetz Chaim literally waited day by day with his bags packed. Motzi Shabbos, he would pack his bags, uh, pack all his uh, luggage, uh, and he waited day by day with his bags packed, waiting for the Mashiach to come. Now, we don't live like that. We, we've become a little bit complacent about the redemption uh, and the Messianic era. We even joke about it, using it as a metaphor for an event that will never happen. Right? You, know, you know, you say, you know, that's, that, that'll happen as soon as the Mashiach comes. You know, um, this particular event will happen as soon as the Mashiach comes. And we're joking. Um, the reality is, if we're truthful with ourselves, um, is the idea of the Mashiach, is the idea of the redemption something that we actually think about regularly or even really expect? Or do we have the same cynical attitude as the people uh, of Yushalayim during First Temple period? They they dismiss the idea that they're going to be destroyed. It's not going to happen. It might happen. It's not going to happen now. 
let's not worry about it. Even if it does happen, what can we do about it? This complacency, kick the can down the road. Is that, is that what we are? Is that what we're doing when it comes to, um, the Mashiach? Well, let's transpose God's words in verse 27 here and apply them not to what the Jews of Yushalayim did 2000 years ago or said 2400 years ago, but what say now about the multiple prophecies of redemption, not the prophecies of destruction, but what we say about the multiple prophecies of redemption that are in the Tanakh. God says here, Beit Yisrael Omri, the house of Israel say, These prophecies that uh, we've got here, they're, they're for the future. For far into the future, whoever who's prophesying the Mashiach, he's prophesying about something that's going to well beyond our life and uh, we'll all be dead. And the question is, do these words apply equally to us as it did to the Jews of Yerushalayim? Now, we seem unwilling um, to buy into or become fully invested in the idea that redemption and Mashiach will somehow arrive speedily, suddenly in our lifetime. After all, those prophecies of Mashiach uh, are already thousands of years old. The last of the prophets died nearly 2,300 years ago. Uh, it really does seem that there is an actual parallel between the complacency of the Jews of Yerushalayim in Yechezkel's time that said, you know, you could be the base of English will be destroyed, but it's not going to happen today. And it's not going to happen tomorrow. And our complacency today. Yeah, we know the redemption is going to come. We know Mashiach is going to come. We know the base of Migdosh is going to be built. We know the temple is going to be rebuilt. But you know what? It's not going to happen today. And uh, as some people say, it's not even convenient for it to be today. You know, I've booked to go on a cruise. I've booked a hall uh, with a, uh, well, there's no refund. I paid a deposit. In the time of Yechezkel, you can look at the complacency of the Jews in two ways. There is an optimistic approach and there is a pessimistic approach. The optimistic approach is the prophets have predicted destruction for hundreds of years. It hasn't happened yet. So either it's never going to happen or at the very least, it will happen a long time after we're dead. So let's just carry on life as normal as we've been going on. That was the optimistic approach. Alternatively, there's a pessimistic approach. The pessimistic approach is this. The prophets predicted destruction for hundreds of years. It's obviously going to happen at some stage. So what's the point in us trying to prevent it? Petitioning against it, doing teshuva. After all, the decree is set in stone. So we might as well just carry on as normal. And when it happens, it happens. Fatalistic. A fatalistic approach. A pessimistic, fatalistic approach. So human, human beings, um, it's been proved uh, scientifically uh, in many studies, human, human beings have got the capacity to ignore an expected predicted event in the future for either of these two reasons, either from the uh, optimistic approach, that it, yeah, it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen for a long time, or for the pessimistic approach, yeah, it's going to happen, but there's nothing we can do about it. 
Um, so what can God do to prevent us from slipping into either of these types of complacency? Um, let's use the analogy. Uh, I like this analogy. The analogy of a teacher and his class. Uh, how a teacher deals with his class and try to explain these anomalies, these human, uh, natural human anomalies in the way we think about things. Either we're optimistic about it, it's not going to affect us, or we're fatalistic about it, maybe it will affect us, but there's nothing we can do about it. So let's imagine a class, and the teacher tells his class, those of you that behave, or those of you arrive in class on time for the next two weeks, we'll all go on a trip to the zoo. Now, empirical evidence suggests that uh, you're dealing with a class of children, so the children get very excited, right? They're going to go to the zoo, right? All we've got to do is behave. All we've got to do is arrive in class on time for the next two weeks. What could go? What could possibly go wrong? But unfortunately, empirical evidence suggests that obviously the first day, every child is perfect. Every child arrives on time. By day three, only some of the children will be perfect, perfectly behaved. And there'll be, a, you know, starting already, there'll be a couple of kids that will arrive late. By day 10, no one in the class remembers the promise. And they're all back to their old tricks, misbehaving, arriving late, skipping out early. So what does a teacher do? What can a teacher do to ensure that potential reward stays fresh in the children's mind? So again, he's got two strategies. Strategy, strategy number one is a negative strategy. The teacher puts a list of the children's names on the wall of the classroom. And every time a child misbehaves, he puts a strike next to his name. Three strikes, and that child will be excluded from the trip to the zoo, which gives that particular child a kick up the backside, knowing, you know, he's, uh, he's on notice. He's on a yellow card. And... Uh, Eventually, the class could go on the trip and he's going to be excluded. That's a negative strategy. The strategy of warnings, the strategy of rebuke, the strategy of potential punishment. There's another way a teacher can deal with it, and that's a positive strategy. A teacher can remind children every day of the potential reward. He can hang a picture of children enjoying a day out at the zoo on the classroom wall. He can give the kids stickers to put in their uniform saying, we're all going to the zoo. The teacher can do everything in his power to keep the children's mind focused on the potential reward um, that could come their way if they follow these particular rules. Uh, and the teacher will come up with multiple strategies to keep the children incentivized to behave and arrive at, at school on time. Now, God... God, you know, God does exactly the same thing, both with negative incentives and positive incentives. On the negative side, here, chapter 12 of Yechezkel, God tells Yechezkel not only to predict and verbally describe the destruction of Yerushalayim and the base of Migdosh, God also instructs Yechezkel to make a public demonstration of how dark going into exile looks like. Uh, and how how revolting it looks like in real life. Remember, Yechezkel has been told to scratch his way through a wall 
in order to escape the city, which is what the king is going to do, uh, to walk off into the night, carrying just the bare essentials of exile and wearing just the clothes on your back. God does this to focus the mind of the people on the prospect of losing everything um, to, to, to make that prospect as real as possible in their minds. Now, similarly in our time, to keep our minds focused on the fact that the redemption, the Mashiach, the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdosh has not arrived, he allows our, you know, he allows our Palestinian cousins to wreak havoc on the Temple Mount. God allows them to claim to the world that Yerushalayim is theirs. God allows the world to be seduced by those claims and castigate us. So those are the negative. That's on the negative side. God, God is incentivizing us in a negative way. Just like a teacher wouldn't incentivize a class in a negative way. And just like God did, or Yechezkel did at the time of the base of Mitzvah, to incentivize people to change their approach. But there's a positive way as well. There's a positive approach uh, that God uses. And uh, this is what I want to talk about here. Um, the Vilna Gorn, this is absolutely unbelievable uh, what the Gorn says here. Uh, obviously, we're talking about the Vilna Gorn, probably the greatest mind uh, of the last 500 years, the greatest mind on the planet of the last 500 years. This is the Vilna Gorn in his commentary on the Siddha. Regarding a bracha, we say every day, three times a day, apart from Yom Tov. So, you know, you're talking about 300 days a year. We say this bracha maybe a thousand times a year. And the bracha is this. It's in the Shemona Esra. Ala tzadikim va'al ha'chasidim. Ba'al zikneam ho'beis Yisrael ba'al preta sofreim ba'al ge'er tzedik ba'aleinu ye'emunu rachamah ko'a Hashem alokeinu. God, in English, may your mercy be aroused, God, upon the righteous, on the pious, on the elders of your people, Israel, on the remnant of your scholars, upon the genuine converts, and on the rest of us. Grant the appropriate reward to all those who trust in you. Those who um, have trust in your name in MS, uh, and uh, and place our destiny with them, or place our destiny with the righteous, with the the pious, and uh, the remnant of the scholars of Israel, and we. Uh, uh, May we never be put to shame because we have put our trust in you. And then comes the bracha. Baruchah to Hashem. Blessed is you, O God. Mishon umiptach latzadikim. You are what the righteous lean on and rely on. Now, or trust in. You are, you are the righteous the, the, you are what the righteous lean on and rely on. Now, the Vilna Gorn, in his commentary on this on this verse and on this bracha that we say every day, is troubled by the double language at the end of the bracha. The bracha finishes off Baruch Hashem Mishon Umiftach Latzadikim. Now, I translated it 
that you are you you are god you you are what the righteous lean on uh lean on and rely on trust in Latsadikim. Uh, that's what the righteous lean on and rely on. You, God. Now, the Vilna Gorn says, why do we need this double expression? Um, why do we need an expression of leaning on and relying on? The Gorn says, don't these two words amount to the same thing? Essentially, we are saying, God, you are the one who supports us. You are the one that keeps us going. You are the one we can trust in. And uh, he's troubled by the fact that these two words, Mishan Umiftach, uh, we that we lean on you and we trust in you, um, is seems to be a little bit of tautology, and one of the words seems to be superfluous. And uh, so the Vilna Gorn gives an analogy and to describe why these two words are extremely valuable uh, and extremely pertinent. And the bracha would not be complete without both words. And this is where the Gorn is, you know, in a different world to everybody else. The Gorn says that if you look at the story of Purim, and which everybody knows, the story of Esther and Mordechai and Haman and Achashverosh. So mid, midway through the story, midway through the Megillah, you have a very strange episode. And the strange episode is this. You have the king, Achashverosh, and he can't sleep at night. Um, and uh, uh, he can't sleep at night, so he calls in a couple of his servants to read to him a story. I'll read him a story uh, from the history books. Now, there's no he couldn't he couldn't watch Netflix, and he couldn't he couldn't you know he didn't have any novels to read. All they had in those days was the um, the books, uh, the history books, the history books of uh, Persia. So he got in his advisors to read him the story. Now they turned to the, they opened the book, and they turned to the story of Mordechai. Now earlier on in the book, we're told that Mordechai, who spoke many languages, overheard a conversation between two of the Achashverosh's, um servants who were plotting a coup, plotting to kill, assassinate Achashverosh. And Mordechai overheard it. He understood what they were saying. And he reported the matter to the authorities. And these two characters were arrested. Um, I think it was Big Son and Zeresh. They were arrested and uh, hanged, executed. And now this is a story they're reading to Achashverosh at night because he couldn't sleep. And... um, Achashverosh, after hearing the story, says, you know, how did we, how did we uh, reward this man, Mordechai? And the, the servants went away and they came back and they said, we, he's been given no reward. So Achashverosh got thinking, how can it be that a man who saved my life, I've not rewarded him? In the meantime, coincidentally, of course, the whole of the book of the whole of the Megillus Esther is all about coincidence. Coincidentally, Homer is awry, has arrived at the king's palace. He wants to have an urgent chat with the king. He's got a plan to kill all the Jews. And um, Achashverosh, the king, grants him permission to enter. 
And Homon enters the king's chamber. Remember, he's the second in command. He's the prime minister. And uh, he enters the king's bedroom. And the king says to Homon, before Homon can even open his mouth with his suggestion uh, to kill all the Jews, uh, he says to him, or not to kill all the Jews, he wants to kill Mordechai. Uh, he says to Homon, what should we do with someone the king wants to honor? And obviously, King Achishverosh had in mind Mordechai, because he's just heard the story of how Mordechai had saved his life, and he hadn't been given a reward. Now, Homon, thinking that the king was referring to him, goes through a whole list of things that uh, you should do. Uh, He's thinking that uh, the king is talking about him. So he goes through a whole list of things that the king should do to someone he wants to honor and uh, to thank. And uh, we know the story. He says, yes, we should take this man out and he should ride through the streets of the capital city on the king's horse in public, wearing the royal clothes, etc. And after he gives this piece of advice to King Akashverosh, to his horror, the king then tells Haman that that's what what he must do personally to honor Mordechai. So we know the story that Mordechai... uh, Homon is forced to dress Mordechai up in the king's clothes and take him on the king's horse through the streets of uh, Shushan, the capital, and announce this is what the king, this is what the king does to somebody he wants to honor. That's the story that's in the middle of the uh, Megillah. Asks the Vilnagorn. That episode with Homon leading Mordechai through the streets of Shushan and the king waking up in the middle of the night and uh, reading the story, and then it all falls into place, and it ends up with Homon leading uh, Mordechai through the streets of Shushan, making that announcement. Um, He says that story's got nothing to do with the story of Purim. And not only has he got nothing to do with the story of Purim, it's irrelevant to the plot. He says, true, it's a dramatic, exciting twist, But if you were to remove it from the Megillah, the essence, the message, the outcome of the story would not be affected. After all, Um, there was a a decree given against the Jewish people that Mordechai managed, Mordechai and Esther managed uh, with God's help to have abrogated. And this little interlude here uh, adds nothing to the story. And Asavul Nagorn why was that vignette, that little story included in the Megillah? And listen to the answer he gives. Uh, but first he says, he says, similarly, uh, the God, you could ask the same question about the 10 plagues. You know, God brought 10 plagues on the Egyptians to force the Egyptians to release the Jews. Um, he says, why, w- what was the purpose of the first nine plagues? After all, the first nine plagues, Pharaoh paid no attention to them. Yes, he gave a token response, you can leave, but then he quickly withdrew it. It was only after the 10th plague, when the death of the firstborn, which personally affected Pharaoh as well, um, the, the after the 10th plague, the Machus Bechoros, the, the killing of the firstborn, that immediately elicited the release of the Jews quickly. They were told to leave the next morning. They were told to leave immediately. So it says about the Gorn, why did God bother with the first nine plagues? What's that? What, what the first nine plagues? Let it, let God just bring the tenth plague, which is, you know, brings it, it all home 
to Pharaoh because he lost his own son. And uh, there were apparently riots in Egypt after the uh, plague of the firstborn. People were objecting. People were rioting. Let the Jews go. And let him just bring the uh, the 10th plague and leave the other nine plagues out of it. Says the Gorn like this. And this is what the Gorn is saying here. When the Jewish people are doing the right thing, trying to reach out and connect to God, then God considers us to be like tzaddikim, like in the brocha, that Allah tzaddikim v'ala chasidim. That's the way God looks at us. That's the brocha we say, Allah tzaddikim v'ala chasidim v'al zikneam chobesh Yisrael. He's talking about us. It's about us. That when we are trying to connect to God, we're doing our best in relation to God. God looks at us like tzaddikim. And uh, that's the brocha. That finishes off Mishon Umiftach Latzadikin. But says the Gorn, there can be a problem. The problem is this that because we haven't got there yet, meaning despite the fact that we keep trying, we keep pushing to do the right thing, nevertheless, we haven't got to the point where God God judges that redemption is fully warranted. Um moments in history like the period towards the end of the Egyptian slavery or before the happy resolution of the Purim story and the period before the coming of the redemption of the Mashiach and the rebuilding of the temple, we don't see anything. They never saw anything. The Jews the Jews saw the plagues, yeah, but they never saw any signs that they were going to be redeemed. The, 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 the yes, Mordechai was led through the streets of Shushan, but the, but the, but the the decree against them was still very, very much alive. And the period before the coming of the Mashiach, where is it? Where is the coming of the Mashiach? After davening and praying and fasting and doing everything we do to try and improve our situations, and we don't see any results. We don't see any outcomes. We don't see any positive movements in relation to redemption, we don't see that any positive movements in relation to being saved and being helped. At those moments, God recognizes that we can come, become despondent, thinking that what we are doing isn't producing any positive results because we can't see the fruits of all the work we are putting in. And we daven, we daven, we daven. Sometimes we daven for somebody who's very sick and uh, the person dies. Sometimes we daven for Paranasa and it just doesn't happen. Sometimes we daven for all sorts of things and we never see the results or we never see the positive results. So the Vilna going like this. The brocha that ends with the words that we say every day, and I said we say it maybe a thousand times a year without really understanding why these two words are there. So the Vilna going, the brocha that ends with the words Mish'an umiptach latzadikit. That describes the way God deals with those moments, those moments of despondency, and why these two words, Mishan Umitach, to lean on and to rely on, do not mean the same thing. When we say in the Brocha, Mivtach, in the end of the Brocha, Mishan Umitach Latzadikim, says the Vilna Gorn, the word Mivtach means that God recognizes that we are trying to be tzaddikim, that we have bitachon, 
we trust him and um but we we are despondent because for all the trust we've shown in him we don't seem to be seeing any positive action and all the work we're doing seems to be for nothing says the gone at that point in time if we're really interested if we're really pushing if we really got bitachon if we really got trust in god if we really want to connect to god god's act adds an extra dimension to the way he behaves god doesn't just become a mitach someone we can trust in he becomes a mishan god becomes somebody that we can rely on that we can lean on god will show us a sign to let us know that we can rely on the fact that you people you jews are on the right track and the end game is near you just need to push a little bit harder says the god the story in the megillah about mordechai being lauded and paraded on the king's horse was a message it was a sign from god that all the fasting all the sackcloth and ashes all the davening all the mourning that he and esther and the rest of the jews were doing after haman's decree was paying off even though they couldn't see any results hence haman's words as he led mordechai on the horse kocha yeoselisha this is the way that the man whom the king wishes to honor will be treated says the gone the king in that sentence is not achashverosh the king in that sentence is god read the verse like this this is the way that the man whom god or the people whom god wishes to honor will will shortly be treated and the message to mordechai and the rest of the jews was all we have to do is push a little harder now and the redemption from homon and achashverosh will be achieved it's a sign mordechai being placed on the horse and being shown honor it's a sign of things to come it's a sign that god is listening it's a sign that god is paying attention it's a sign that god recognizes the input you're putting in the attempt the trust the connection you're trying to create with god which is why says the god in the next verse the very next verse after mordechai who gets this subliminal message he understands this subliminal message that this is a message from god the god's god's on your side god's got the message god's playing the game and uh, what did mordechai do immediately after he's been you know you think you go and have a drink and uh, you know take the plaudits of all the people in shusha no so it tells us that he got off his horse he removed the garments the royal garments and it's he's described as by by Yoshev Mordechai el Shar Hamelach Mordechai returned to the king's gate where he was uh, where he stationed himself and the gomorrah megillah says what did he do that for what was he doing at the king's gate says the gomorrah by Yoshev Mordechai el Shar Hamelach Omer of Sheshes Shishov Lasakol Latanisa Mordechai returned to the king's gate where he up till now he'd been sitting uh fasting and mourning with sackcloth and ashes and he continued to do so over the troubles of the jewish people because mordecai reckoned 
realized, he now knew that although there was now light at the end of the tunnel, the job wasn't done yet. God had shown him a sign. He'd shown him a mishan. He'd given, some, he'd given him something, a mishan is something to hang on to. He'd shown him a sign that he could hang on to that told him he's going in the right direction. The Jews are going in the right direction. The teshuva is working. Keep pushing. Similarly, says the God, by the first nine plagues, there was a sign. The first nine plagues were a mishan, a sign, something to hang on to, a sign to the Israelites in Egypt that the omens were good, the times were getting near, and that just another push from them, appealing to God, would get them redeemed from Egypt. Significantly, the Gorn adds that as we draw near to the time of, of Mashiach, these hints that the redemption is just around the corner, uh, and that God has recognized our efforts to reestablish our bond with him, will be even more pronounced than they were at any other time in history. So Mordechai had a subliminal message. He was taken around Shushan on the king's horse. Uh, God's subliminal message to him that he's on the right track. The Jews were in Egypt. The first nine plagues were assigned to them by Nitzak el Hashem We cried out to God, keep crying. It's working. These first nine plagues are a sign that you're crying out to me is working. Keep doing that and you'll be redeemed. Says the Gorn at the time of the Mashiach, these subliminal messages, these subliminal links, these Mishanim, these things that we can, these signs that we can hang on to will become even more pronounced at the time of the Mashiach leading to the time of the redemption. Um, and he says, if we do our best to show that we have bitochon in God, and that he is the miftach tzadikim, we've got complete trust in God, God will show us mishanim, God will show us plenty of signs of impending redemption. Now, the Vilna Gorn didn't live in the 20th century. But uh, I don't think it's too much of a, um, a too much of a uh, extrapolation or deep theory uh, that the miraculous establishment of the state of Israel after two thousand years and all the miraculous events that have followed that—the forty-eight war, the fifty-six war, the sixty-seven war, the ingathering of the exiles—these are mishanim. These are things that we can hold on to. Uh, the, the trust we show in God, God reciprocates the miftach that we show in God, the bitachon we show in God, God reciprocates with mishanim, with a mishan, something we can hold on to. Look at, look at 67. No one in the annals of history can point to a war that was so obviously miraculous, a sign from God. Mordechai being carried on a royal horse plagues striking Egypt for no apparent reason. The Jewish people surrounded by an existential threat, outnumbered 50 to 1, win a war in six days. It's a sign. It's a sign, it's an indication that we're on the right track, that the redemption, the messianic era is in reach. What we have to do is push harder. Push harder in our attempts to connect to God. God's giving us the the office. God's giving us 
holding out the olive branch. Grab onto it. Here's the sign. On the, although we are, as ever, in the state of Israel, beset with problems. We got a, a state that's secular by nature. Uh, at the moment, certainly, there's a lack of unity in the country. Uh, we got existential enemies that surround us that are desperate to kill us. Uh, we still got a lot of lot of good things going for us. There's never been in the history of the Jewish people, in the history of the Jewish people, not even in first temple period times, as much learning of Torah going on now as there uh, going on in history as there is now. There isn't as much davening. There isn't as much fervor in davening. The huge amount of chesed that is done in this country compared to the rest of the world. Uh, and this country, um, the chesed that this country provides internationally, wherever there's an international event of consequence, a tragedy, for example, the first country to mobilize after the earthquake in Morocco this week were the Jews, with the, with the Israelis. When there was an earthquake in Turkey, the first people to respond were the Jews. When there was an earthquake in Haiti, the first people to respond were the Jews. When there was apartheid in South Africa, the only white, well, the majority of the white people protested were the Jews. The people, the, the white people in America during the uh, times of Martin Luther King that held hands with the black community and with Martin Luther King were the Jews. Uh, add to that the huge Baltashuva movement of the last 50 years. These factors are all building slowly, slowly building into a crescendo and just one more push, uh, as the Gorn says, will be there, just like it was at the time of Purim, just like it was at the time of the Exodus from Egypt. We just got to keep pushing. He says the last thing we need to do, to do now is to do what the Jews of Yushalayim did. Sorry, the last thing we need to do now is to do what the Jews of Yushalayim did and became complacent and say, yes, uh, we've got our land back. Yes, we've got a great army. Yes, we live in great economic times. Yes, we live in a good, right, moral way. No, we're never going to be thrown out of this land again. We're too powerful economically, militarily. That's the last thing we need to do, to adopt the complacency of these Jews that Yechezkel is speaking to. It's never going to happen. No, nothing bad can happen. Not only will something bad happen, the thing, the good thing that was going to happen won't happen. That was the complacency that Yechezkel exposed amongst the Jews of Yehuda and Yerushalayim with tragic results. We need to push on from the miracles that God has shown us over the last 75 years and push ourselves over the line. You know, in American um, um, uh, uh, American football terms, we're for, it, what, what's the expression, Larry Lowenthal? We're on first and goal. We're on first and goal, right? We're one, one yard from the goal line. And uh, we got four downs. And uh, we don't get, you don't give up. You don't, you don't go, you don't go, go for a field goal when you're, you're uh, first and goal. Correct, Larry? Is that right? Am I got the American football analogy correct? Correct, correct. First and goal, you're all right. For fourth and goal, you're going for the field goal. Yeah, but you're, we're first and goal. Here we are, first 